My name is Panos. My name's Sebastian. Welcome to Curiosity. Welcome. So today we're going to talk about numbers. Numbers? Yeah, when we were doing our Da Vinci episode, Sebastian got really excited. I did get really excited. <laughs> about... Uh, the golden ratio. The golden ratio. Yeah. Um, so he's like... A lot yeah. has happened since then, though. Ah, you know what? We'll just let the, u- the users... We'll let the uh, listeners go back, listen... Yes. Listen to him like it kind of really excited for Da Vinci Part 2 and then all of a sudden go, oh, okay, we're going to do it in another episode. Yeah. Uh, so we decided we'd do uh, not not the, our favorite numbers, but all, I, I don't know, through through the sciences, there's all these random very numbers. In, very important constants and yeah, just, just pivotal numbers that have defined new eras of study. <laughs> I guess. And, and new areas of study and a lot of them are just that they were found really in bizarre ways. Yeah. You know? Um, or that so. we didn't know that they existed until we found them. Yeah. We weren't necessarily looking for them. That's good science. Yeah. It's finding things you weren't looking for. Or finding things by mistake. Yeah. Uh, so there's a history of numbers apparently. Yeah. So I thought, I thought we'd start off with how, how long has it been since the human mind has even considered numbers to be numbers? Um, and so uh, apparently they have found, it was about 35,000 years ago, there was a bone that was used it's from, a, from a baboon, the fibula from a baboon. And uh, they found it in North Africa. Um, and it had uh, very distinct markings, hmm. much like, uh, you know, uh, the typical jail cell, where yeah. you, have, you know, the one, two, three, four, and then, uh, you know, how many days he's been there. Yeah. Well, they had one, uh, they found two bones, and with one, one of the bones, there was a sequence of numbers. Mm. Um, on the left side of it, it was 19, 17, 13, and 11. Um, again, just lines, not the actual numerical. Um which are all prime numbers. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what's the relation? Yeah, and then on the other side of it, there was 9, 19, 21, and 11, uh, which are all odd numbers. Huh. So they can only hypothesize and guess what those values would have actually meant. Hmm. Uh, who knows? They, you know, they bring forward possibilities like uh, maybe it was a, as a hunting count. Uh, how many they caught that year or whatever or that that week or whatever it is um again it was it was just a mark or a a proof of we now understand to count in hmm. some form yeah um you know to 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 assume that they understood prime numbers yeah, thirty five thousand years ago. And and again, if you look at anything long enough, I think you could come up with anything you wanted. So oh yeah, I feel like that that's like science in a nutshell. You you look at a uh, sequence of numbers, you're like that totally makes absolute sense. And yeah, then, yeah, which, no. Which we'll actually we'll talk about in the golden ratio anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it took uh, quite a long time uh, before there was a, a switch between um, in the language of numbers where it no longer became counting objects, but that numbers they themselves became abstract abstract values. Hmm. So, I mean, it's easy to, and in a lot of linguistic history, um, they a lot of tribes will, for instance, give a different name to, uh, you know, two, uh, whenever they caught, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that week, they'll, they'll have a name for a single one or a name for two or a name for three or more. And so they attributed actual, like, nomenclature, like, language to the number. And it was only until much f- later that one became one. Seven became seven, but abstract. Yeah, it just... Didn't, it wasn't seven, you know, coconuts. It was just 
Seven. Maybe to try and um, to try and make this a little bit simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be like two fish is called dosa. Exactly. Or and two antelope is called ale. Yeah. And they are they both count as two, but they didn't have the concept of the number two. That's right. Yeah. Um, they just had different names for multiples of things. That's right. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so. Uh, and and even the the type of numbers we have today, we don't even think of it this way. But they're all they're base ten numbers, right? Mm. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, um, and then ten, and then that that series begins again. Yeah. Right. And then you have decimal points, so you kind of really understand. Yeah. It's not. It hasn't always been like that. No. There are, there are different civilizations that have base twenty. In fact, that is still use it today. And I, when I was reading this. To me, a base 20 isn't necessarily very um, intuitive. Yeah. But in French, uh, when you yeah. say the number 80, it's 80. Yeah. Well, that actually directly translates to uh, 420. Yeah. And in addition, if you say like 90, for instance, it's 90. A direct translation is 42010. Yeah. And also, it, if you think of like um, 10, 11, 12, like if if you're counting in French, right? Sure. They have individual names. Yeah. You know, it's like onze, douze, treize. Yeah. They're not like ten and one. Right. You know. Um, and, so and apparently in English, the eleven and twelve uh, goes back to I believe it's Latin, and it's it actually translates to one remaining. Huh. So eleven is one remaining. Twelve is two remaining. And then thirteen, fourteen, fifteen starts to obey. Yeah, the teens. A different teens, right? Yeah. Um. And so that's how they kind of attributed those eleven and twelve, cool. Which is why it's not. I don't even know one in. Yeah. I don't. Even, I, don't I don't know. I don't even guess. Yeah. Unin. Um. So yeah. So that. So those. Those. Those ten base came around five hundred BC, cool. and they're Arabic numerals. Yeah. Uh, so we stole it from them. Yeah. <laughs> or well, we borrowed it. Uh, we utilized we their utilized. methodology. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds like theft to me too. It's yeah. Um. And so and so yeah so we've been you know we've been utilizing that that base 10 system ever since. Uh and obviously the base 10 system not necessarily won over but it was developed initially because of a very, very simple fact. Whenever you start counting, okay? Uh when you were 5, 6 and don't lie to yourself, you're probably, you know, 25 and you're still doing it now. Every once in a while. You're trying to subtract or add. What do you use? You use your fingers. You use your fingers. How many fingers do you have? Generally, we have ten. Yeah. So it was um it was a very simple system, um to um to count. Cool. So, so stick with ten. Um, one place that they actually don't stick with ten um is in logarithmic. Um, so when you think of uh of math terms, uh, log is right. one of these really really uh common ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really have to deal with ex- exponentials and blah, 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 heavy math stuff. Mm. Um, but do you remember there was log and then there was the other one that was kind of weird? Log. No. What's the other There one? was log and okay. then there was lawn, L-N. Oh, yeah. I, I chose never to use that one. Yeah. Well, I, I chose <laughs> Maybe that's never. that's why I never do well on math. Yeah. Well, no. And, and this was something that was really interesting to me because I was like, okay, where the hell did this lawn come from? Because it seems like log 10... And then all of a sudden, it's like there's this weird one, and then there's this this weird number e, right? Um, so yeah. this weird number e, e is called Euler's number. Euler. Uh, it's approximately Euler? it's approximately uh, equal to two point seven one eight two eight. Two point seven. Okay. Again, it's one of these. It's kind of like pi that we'll talk about a little bit later. Sure. Um, it's one of these irrational numbers, so it just keeps going and going and going and going. Uh, and Euler was actually kind of a badass when it came to math. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is, 
born in the 18th century and uh, and worked under our best friend Bernoulli. Ah, Bernoulli. Bernoulli. Yeah. Uh, and a prolific mathematician, like cool. crazy. Um, he, in his later life, later in life, he became blind and continued to write. Uh, and at one point in 1775, he was said to have produced a paper a week. That's cheating. That's ridiculous. Uh, it, it's absolutely cheating. Uh, and it was attributed to his, his mental calculation skills okay. and uh, photographic memory, which I thought was really interesting. So, yeah, I'm jealous. So, so this is a public service announcement for children. I, I could have I finished my PhD in three weeks. I know, weeks. right? Uh, but a public service announcement for children. Yeah. Math is cool. Math. Learn how to do mental calculation yes. just in case you become blind. <laughs> um, so he discovered uh, E... Mm-hmm. Uh, when doing experiments on the firing of a cannon. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, and, and that's where he, he kind of discovered the, the number and that's where like, that's where E first shows up. Mm -hmm. Um, but he actually discovered the number itself, uh, when trying to calculate continual compound interest. Oh yeah. I I hate when I have to do that. I know. It's so, it's, it was, (laughs) it was just like, it was, it was a mathematical musing that he's like, you know, I wonder if I were to invest a dollar at a rate of interest of a hundred percent over a year okay. and compound that continually, right. so every instant that happens, you know, I get a hundred percent interest. Okay. How much money would I have after how much time? Uh, after a year, okay. but it's compounded continually. So okay. at every after every second, there's one more added interest uh, is added, all right. and uh, and yeah, and and it popped out this random number, okay. uh, and that number ended up being E. Oh. Um. And E is actually really, really important in a lot of the maths because um, anytime you talk about exponentials, E to the something, mm-hmm. E to the power of X, E to the power of... And you can see these in, in everywhere in math. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all began when someone was just like kind of musing and going like, I wonder how much money I would get if I, uh, if I tried to do compound interest mm-hmm. over a year. I thought that was really weird. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Another one of these like kind of random numbers that is, uh, like I said, an irrational number is is pi. Right. Um, so what do we use pi for? Yeah. Well, pi is this beautiful constant that uh, can essentially give you either the area of a circle. It can give you the diameter of a circle. Obviously, if it can give you the diameter, give you the ra- the radius of a circle. And so, um, yeah, with a very simple equation, uh, for instance, the area of a circle is equal to pi r squared. Mm-hmm. So you're you're able to um, you're able to solve very very complicated um, problems uh, with with three point one four one five nine two six that, five three eight. That's as far as I go. I know. Um, and apparently, its discovery was a simple, well, simplistic, but yet interesting one. Kind of simple, yeah. Um, so basically, it was a long time ago. Um, in probably like the 200 BCs, uh, the ancient Greeks, uh, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, they were they were trying to figure out how to figure out the area of a circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're like, okay, we have a circle. We know how to get the area of a square and things with more sides. If we can fit a small square in this, like the first estimation was a hexagon. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can fit a hexagon in a circle and you know the radius of the circle... Mm-hmm. You can kind of make a, a rough estimate to how, like, the area of the circle based on the area of the hexagon. Okay. 
Um, so by using this approximation and, and trying this out with several circles, mm-hmm. uh, knowing what the area is of the internal hexagon and knowing what the radius is of the circle, you can kind of start to see this pattern mm-hmm. and this number starting to pop out, uh, which to their approximation was 3.125. That's pretty close. Which is pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and as as math progressed, they actually were able to basically make this hexagon more and more sided. Okay. Um, so instead of a six-membered... Yeah, you go uh, Vodica. You know, you go 12, 12, you go... 10, 12, whatever. You know, and, and as math progressed, you know, we're looking at like tens of thousands of sided polygons mm-hmm. and cool. figuring out the area of that because we know how to do that. Sure. And then... You know, pi got more and more and more precise. Cool. Uh, which I and actually fun fun fact for pi, Albert Einstein's birthday is on Pi Day. Really? Yeah, March fourteenth, uh, eighteen seventy nine. What? Eighteen? Forget the eighteen seventy nine. But uh, <laughs> yeah, March March fourteenth. You never know. Maybe that was important. Um. Yeah. Sure. I guess. Um. um I thought. Uh, just to to finish off on pi, mm-hmm. uh, if you're ever curious, I, I don't know why this is the case, okay. but if you're ever going for an estimation, okay. uh, pi is approximately 25 over eight. Don't know why. Um, what, what, sorry, say that again. What does that mean? It's if you're over. if yeah if you're trying to figure out like pi like a number that's kind of close to pi. Okay. 25 over eight. Okay. Yeah, um, but I, I still will never forget uh, having those small, like those uh, little blue calculators when you forgot your calculator at home. Right. And then they're like, here, you were supposed to have a scientific calculator, but this school is ghetto. So here's a I calculator. I never had that calculator. Uh, no, the scientific calculator? Uh, No, the ghetto blue calculator. Yeah, it was a ghetto blue calculator because that's what they had to give like grade two, grade three when they were uh, first doing it. Uh, so they'd give you the ghetto one they, that didn't have pi in it. So we yeah. just got abacuses. <laughs> but you had to remember pi to a certain number so that you could get the answer. That's amazing. Uh, so like my knowledge of pi started from there. Well, there you go. That's why you were reciting at least. Well, Five, six it, after the decimal point. I felt kind of stupid that moment, but uh, I digress. <laughs> Um, so the golden ratio, the golden ratio, uh, to understand the golden ratio, one must understand Fibonacci, uh, and to go back Fibonacci, actually originally Leonardo, uh, da Pisa is his real name. Yeah. So his, his new name is kind of Leonardo Fibonacci. Uh, and much like we were talking about Leonardo da Vinci, remember, does from Vinci, from mm. the small town of Vinci, Leonardo is from Pisa. Okay. Of course, you've heard of Pisa, Leaning Tower. I, I'm sorry, I, I have to ask, can you imagine like how many Leonardo da Pisa I, I, or da, da Vinci's there must have been? Like, they, they didn't have imagination It'd names. be like a George in Greece. Yeah, George, <laughs> George of Athens. Like, George of Athens. Crap. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there, there, I'm sure there's a lot of them. Yeah. And, um... So, so yeah, so his original name is Leonardo da Pisa, and um, he actually, he grew up in North Africa. Cool. Under the education of the Moors, and later traveled extensively around the Mediterranean coast. Hmm. And so, as a result, he learned um, the systems, the the Hindu-Arabic system. Yeah. Uh, and this is the, the, the decimal points that we were telling you, the base 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, he was really one of the, the advocates and strong uh, movements forward to bringing this uh this new numerology if you want uh forward and he wrote the book of abacus or the book of uh calculating which is the translation book of calculating in 1202 Hmm. and in that book there's a chapter that poses a question and i'm going to pose this question to you now and the answer to this question essentially gives you a sequence of numbers okay 
and this is known as the Fibonacci number. So I'll I'll ask you this here now. It's kind of like a little riddle. Okay. So how many pairs of rabbits are created by one pair in one year? Right. So to more specifically, he goes into it, and he gives you like the details. Yeah. He goes, a certain man had one pair of rabbits together in a certain enclosed place, and one wishes to know how many are created from the pair in one year when it is the nature of them in a single month to bear another pair. Okay. And in the second month, those born to bear also. So it's kind of a little riddle. So yeah. you have two initial rabbits. One yeah. month later, they have a new rabbit. Um, and so obviously that takes time. It takes a month for that rabbit to get old enough to have another rabbit. Yeah. So here's a sequence. Here's the kind of the sequence of explanations. So it goes at the end of the first month, they mate. Okay. Right. But there is still only one pair. Yeah. Great. At the end of the second month, the female produces a new pair. So now there is two pairs of rabbits. At the end of the third month, the original female produces a second pair, making three pairs in all. At the end of the fourth month, the original female has produced yet another new pair. The female born two months ago produced her first pair, also making five pairs. I know you're getting a little lost. I, I saw a diagram of this and got, you got a little lost. So essentially what happens is that the, the sequence of numbers of pairs of rabbits goes from one, two, three, five, eight, 13, 21, 34, 55, and 89. And a really easy way to calculate the sequence of numbers is just to add the first two numbers, and that'll give you the next one. So okay. very simple. Um, we'll start at 2. 2 plus 3 equals 5. 3 plus 5, 3 plus eight. 5, 8. 8 plus 13, 21. 13 plus 21, 34. 34, 35. Okay. Okay, so it just keeps going and going. And yeah. Going. Okay. And so this gave a very specific sequence of numbers known as the Fibonacci numbers. Cool. Now. The golden ratio. The golden ratio comes in when you divide one number by the one that precedes it. So let's okay. start off. Um, if you start off in the earlier values, you, you see a lot of fluctuation. Yeah. But as you go down, that uh, it actually starts to, to level off to a very distinct value. Yeah. Okay. And so I'll start off at, for instance, 3. So 3 divided by 2, 1.5. Uh, 5 divided by 3, 1.66. 8 divided by 5, 1.6. 13 divided by 8, 1.62. And as I keep going, it goes 1.61, 1.619, 1.618, 1.617, And slowly it goes like a little bit above 1.6, a little bit below, right. above, below, above, and below, and eventually it'll just level out. To 1.618. And well, then, I'm sure and, there's a lot more oh, decimals. Well, so it's an irrational number. And yeah. what that means is that it'll just keep going. Just like pi, just like E. Yeah, but there are no there are no patterns to it. So yeah. you will sequentially see endless number of numbers, uh, no pun intended, um, and there's no patterns to it. Yeah. Okay. And so what does this mean for everything else? Because there are, there's there's such a fan base of... The golden ratio is found everywhere. Everywhere. And it's the, creepy. The, the golden rectangle. So to give you an example of, of the golden ratio line, let's use our finger. Okay. Okay. So I want you to, um, to look at your hand. Okay. So stick out your hand in front of you. And I want you to look at your index finger. Okay. 
So your index finger, you can see there's a, if you look at it, you can almost divide it in a few parts, right? Absolutely. Because the knuckle is there and, and maybe even the top part you can divide it. But let's, let's just divide it into two parts. Okay. Okay. So if you take your index finger and you kind of slightly bend it forwards, mm -hmm. you'll see where your knuckle is, the bottom base there. It, it shows a line. You kind of get a line in front of you. So from the base of your finger to that line, let's call that part A. Okay. Okay. And then from the rest of your finger, from that line, the top line, to the rest of the tip of the finger, it's called part B. Okay. Okay. So we have A and B. Okay. So the ratio that we're talking about in terms of the golden ratio is if you divide part B by part A, you get 1.618. Okay. If you divide the entire size, uh, the entire length of the finger with part B, which is the longer part that we were looking at, you get 1.618. Huh. So... So yeah, so so again, so you get the total finger divided by that long part is the same ratio as that long part divided by that smaller part. And you can see this in a lot of different parts of the body. It's actually kind of creepy. Yeah. Uh, length of the mouth and the width of the nose, apparently 1.6. So, uh, yeah. Height and length between the navel point and the foot. Uh, length between the pupils and length between the eyebrows. All of these ratios mm -hmm. just happen to be the golden ratio. I'm sure you have some more fun ones. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was, it was, it was really difficult and tiring. I'll be honest. Uh, reading about the golden ratio <laughs> because as strong uh, as they're a following for the golden ratio in nature, there is an anti-following. Huh. Um, and and they're both right and they're both wrong. Um, so as Panos was alluding to, there are a lot of, uh, you've probably seen this in a show or whatnot, documentaries, that they show that the golden ratio, the perfect face, uh, is divided, as Panos was saying, into an endless amount of ratios between the distance of the eyes and the nose and the lips. Um, and apparently they did a study back in uh, 20, I believe this was 2011, where they asked 2,000 people, uh, sorry, there was 8,000 contestants in the UK. Okay. And they all submitted their picture. Hmm. And um, and one person was chosen. Uh, in fact, I'll give Panos a look of what she looks like. One one picture was chosen yeah. as a beautiful face. They didn't say whether she was the golden ratio or not, but the, yeah. she was chosen as the most beautiful face. Yeah. And uh, you could see she's a good-looking girl. She's you know, attractive. You know, of course. Um, and, of course, they were then looking at golden ratios between them and they found many yeah the problem is when you're looking for a number you will find it um and so this is one of the major concerns about the golden ratio being found in many things yeah is that you know uh if you're if you're calculating whatever and a distance from the eye to the other eye well maybe you'll take the inside of the pupil rather than the center of the pupil or yeah. the out you know and so you can start manipulating so many things that eventually you're always going to get what you want. Yeah. Um, and so this was a lot of the examples that I found. So other examples of um, of the golden ratio was, for instance, the Parthenon. Mm -hmm. So the Parthenon is one of the great examples. Um, and again, it I'm going to go with the same kind of trend. Uh, the Parthenon does exist in, in the golden ratio if you take it from the top of the stairs, but not from the base of it. Yeah. Uh, why would you do that? Well, when you're looking for something, you're going to do it. So there's a lot of these types of examples where, yeah, maybe you found it, but you're cheating to find it. One place that I would think that uh, it would actually have been intentional would be with Leonardo da Vinci's work. Right. Um, you can see it in uh, da Vinci's Mona Lisa. 
Yeah. Apparently has a lot of golden ratios in there. Yeah. Again, it could be a stretch. Yeah. Um, um, the Last Supper. The Last Supper. I think you spoke about that last I time. I did. Yeah, yeah, you did. So again, there's an image online where you can look at it. And uh, although there, sh- there certainly are a lot of golden ratios, the thing is you're you know you're you're choosing the lines you want to calculate yeah um so i don't want to say it isn't but at the same time i don't want to say it is um the only one i was really 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 convinced of was the creation of adam by michelangelo Hmm. um which you know uh, so if if anyone's not familiar with that painting it's the one where um uh on the very left you know he's naked sprawled out and it's the the finger touch with god yep you know um very uh dramatic and and beautiful painting and so if you look at the entire painting and you create a vertical line exactly where they touch, uh, then you can divide Adam's side by God's side, and that is a golden ratio. Hmm. Uh, I, w- I would also think that in um, in Da Vinci's painting, mm-hmm. the man... Uh, the Vitruvian. The Vitruvian man. Yep. All those ratios kind of have to be right because that's... That was where we started. Yeah, exactly. We started this yeah. conversation so about it. The Vitruvian Man had a lot of golden ratios. Um, um, again, like, yeah. So I was, I was, when I was doing this, I was obviously trying to measure a whole bunch of my different ratios. Yeah, of on my course. Own body, I looked really awkward doing it. Um, so, for instance, apparently the one you're supposed to have from the floor to your belly button is the longer region versus your belly button to the top of your head. I did that. I didn't get it. So maybe I'm just kind of awkward and disproportionate. Yeah. Um, but I did get the arm. So if you look at your hand uh, versus your forearm, so the elbow down, I got a golden ratio. Mm. Um, so there are definitely places where you find it. And um, the, the examples, there are a lot of you know human ar- architecture and, and all that kind of stuff. That... I'm very concerned about in, in saying they're def- definitive golden ratios because, yeah. well, not only did we create them, but we're looking for it. What I found better examples of golden ratios was in nature. Absolutely. Which is which is far more impressive and far more interesting. So I, th- I think one of the most interesting ones is DNA. Okay. So uh, if you if you look at DNA, it's a, it's a double helix spiral, right? Yeah. And so just to give a visual, right? You think of two Twizzlers together. Two Twizzlers yeah. together. Perfect. And you just start rotating, rotating, rotating. That'll give you the double helix shape. Yeah. So um, so the proportion of the major groove to the minor groove is roughly 21 angstroms to 13 angstroms. So what he's talking about is the inner, almost like the inner part as opposed to the outer part. It's really hard to, yeah, to there's, visualize. But as it spirals down, so angstrom is a, is a, is a unit of measurement. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very, 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 very small unit uh, yeah. called the angstrom. And, um, and so, yeah, so if we recall, 21 and 13 are both units of the Fibonacci sequence. Yeah. Uh, so, again, these proportions come in to the golden ratio. I think, sorry, I think one of my favorite ones is um, whenever you're looking at shells, um, there's particular shells where you just look at the shell and and it seems like the divisions start to get smaller and smaller and smaller as you progress through the the shell. The Nautilus shell, I believe. The Nautilus shell, yeah. And it's it's, it's just incredibly visually. Um, And that's one thing that I wanted to add about the golden ratio is that like we may not have created them intentionally, but like... it's thought that the golden ratio has a beauty to it or that like innately humans believe that things are things that have are in that sequence or have that ratio are beautiful. 
Yes. Um, and I, I, I listened to a two-hour-long uh, lecture by a professor who was kind of giving a psychology test on all these different types of rectangles. Huh. Because apparently the, the, the golden rectangle is the one you prefer most. Yeah. And that's the golden ratio. Um, the audience didn't really agree. <laughs> mm. um, so it could be the power of suggestion as well. Absolutely. Um, I don't I don't want to say anything for sure. Um, but there may be certain rules. Anyway, and so coming back to, to nature, because nature I find is so much more interesting. If you look at the pentagram, uh, if, you, if you calculate various ratios and distances between the star and the pentagram, you will find everywhere the golden ratio. If you look at pine cones... Um, yeah. And um, so if you look at a pine cone up from, from the top down or down top view, you're going to see spirals. There's a lot of spirals. And if you count those spirals, they always end up being Fibonacci numbers. Uh, same thing with petals. A lot of uh, sequences of petals mm -hmm. on flowers, they end up being, uh, what was it, 20, what was it, 20, sorry. Uh, 13, 20, one. I've, I've lost my, my sequence. 13, 21. 21, uh, 34. So there are very distinct, Not it doesn't apply to all of them, but there are a lot of them that are distinct like that. Yeah. And um, and so there, there is actually a reason for this. Hmm. Um, and if it, it kind of comes into, so there was um, an example of this called in, in fractures. So the fractures are like these little... Um, these designs, these patterns. And if you were to take, for instance, a pentagon, which is a five-sided square, and you were to uh, multiply that that image uh, at every corner of it, and then you shrink it down. So essentially like a fracture, what happens is that you have this beautiful this beautiful shape, and then you, you create a new shape, but only with that pentagram. Okay. So you just multiply it and multiply it and multiply it and multiply it, and it, it kind of gives off these beautiful structures. It almost looks like um, uh, like a uh, a snowflake, kind of because a snowflake has a certain base, and then you can keep going. Anyway, so they discovered that the only way you can keep creating um, with the same shape at an even distance, so that they don't overlap, is by uh, proportionally decreasing the size of that shape by 0 0.618. Hmm. And so it's essentially become this ratio where um, it is the perfect ratio in which uh, space can, or like uh, structures can, can, can align themselves but without interfering with one another. And why is that important? I only come back and I'll finish with this. Uh, for, for instance, petals. And mm. um, and other shapes in, in nature and whatnot. If you want to maximize the number of structures you have without them interfering with one another, yeah. Um, for instance, for sunlight or anything else like that, there is a certain degree or angle in which you want them at. Yeah, and that angle is consistently the Fibonacci, the the golden ratio. Cool. Um, so this is why we may observe them so frequently in nature. Hmm. Because it happens to be the happens to be the the, the right ratio for for growth in or, that sense. Well, almost I would almost argue the most efficient way to the have the, the, the to have the most number of petals or Perfect. the most number of of something. Because Absolutely, I know that a lot. Um, I, I you know thinking to, or hearing you talk about all this, it yeah. it just seems like you know the the golden ratio is something that is so beautiful in nature. Yeah. Um, and nature has found reasons. Yeah. For all of this. So and and just. So my last words would be on the golden ratio. 
when it comes to the pyramids, when it comes to the Parthenon, when it comes to art, when it comes to architecture, when it comes to anything um, we've built, yeah, um, it, it could it could either be highly influential in the sense where yeah they 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 looked for it, they knew the golden ratio and they built it, but more of the time we're looking for it and so we will find it yeah um and that's cheating Um, (laughs) that's not proper science that's not proper science but nature doesn't lie nature is so in that sense when we see spirals when we see fractures when we see uh, all these types of uh, dna when we see these examples very cool so another one of these fundamental uh numbers Mm -hmm. uh, that we see a lot of is gravity yeah of course um so uh in in physics uh they have big g and little g Okay. Um, Big G uh, G is a constant that's used actually to know the force of gravity between two large masses. Okay. Um, So being able to see kind of the force of gravity between two planets. Mm -hmm. uh, And all of a sudden they have this ratio or sorry, this uh, this value for the the uh, gravitational constant. So Um, so there's an actual attributed value to the the force between two objects well it's it's actually kind of weird so if you know the mass the estimated mass of your two planets okay and the distance between them yeah you can find the force between them that's ridiculous which seems so ridiculous yeah. um but but yeah you're able to do it and it's because of this constant big g okay um and just like everything else hey big g hey big g um and just like everything uh, or what i feel like everything else in science it was discovered by accident okay uh, by a, a person by the name of Henry Cavendish okay. um, and performed the head, the, the Cavendish experiment. Cavendish. I don't want to explain it because it is you need visuals for it. I'm, okay. I'm not even going to try. Um, but I just found it kind of funny that he was trying to measure Earth's density relative to water. And then, water. Okay. and then through like his, his <laughs> that work. <laughs> yeah. Through his precise knowledge of, of gravitational interactions, and with a little bit of math, they're like, oh, P.S., this can also be used to find the gravitational pull between planets. Oh. Yeah. And you're oh, just yeah. like, oh, okay, yeah. that that works, I, 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 I guess. Yeah. Um, the other one is little g. Uh, and this one is, is the one that, that uh, is, is specific to Earth. Um, so little g is uh, 9.8 meters per squared, uh, meters per second squared, sorry. Right, right, right. Um, and this one's used uh, based on... So what does that mean? Kinda, so, okay, what does so 9.8 meters per second squared mean okay in so in terms of physics uh, in terms of physics so newton's second law um says the force of gravity or forces in general but we'll talk about the force of gravity gravity mm-hmm. is equal to the mass times the f- the this gravitational constant acceleration uh acceleration okay. um for earth it is that value 9.8 mm-hmm. um we've just decided that or sorry through um through figuring out the numbers and figuring out uh the calculations that that is the value that we get when we try and figure out the force um, of a particularly weighted item. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found particularly interesting about it is that there's actually a lot of factors. Um, so like they, they say that it's about 9.8, mm-hmm. but there's uh, a bunch of different factors that contribute to whether it's precisely 9.8 or like what that precise value is. Uh, latitude, which I thought was really interesting. I'm like, okay, where you are on, on the planet um, okay. actually will affect it because if you think of uh, the rotation of the Earth, mm-hmm. um, yeah, if it, the the rotation of the Earth will affect the gravity. Okay. Um, just yeah, uh, altitude, which we kind of already know will affect uh, the gravitational constant. Uh, depth as well. Uh, so how deep you are uh, 
deep you are underwater, mm-hmm. um, it'll depend because really gravitational uh, gravitation at its its core is, is based on your distance from the center of the Earth. Okay. Um, local to- local topography, so the presence of mountains and dense rock and uh, air density as well. Cool. Um, just because, just like everything else, uh, air and everything has to go travel through something, some f- sort of medium. Sure. Um, but what's most interesting about 9.8 is... Um, kind of the effects of having 9.8 as a specific gravity um if you think of uh if you think of the moon right the number 9.8 is specific to the earth and because of 9.8 we can have bodies we can have cells because the gravitation actually pulls a lot of the things together um whereas on the moon uh it would be it would be something different uh, six times less six times less yeah um, and that'll have effects on the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were talking about our, uh, not our airplane episode, but our pressure episode. Um, and we were talking about uh, different pressures. Mm-hmm. Um, with less gravity comes less pressure on the body. Right. Um, so so when we're thinking about a livability of a, of a planet, for instance, uh, the gravitation has a really big part to play. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it's 9.8 as a value doesn't really hold any any weight to it no pun intended <laughs> um but that <laughs> that number um is is really important cool um another really important number to uh to chemists um just because Who cares about chemists? i know uh, <laughs> avogadro's number uh, avogadro uh do you do you remember what avogadro i uh there was a song um there was a song uh the only the only the only line i remember from that song is uh, six times ten to the twenty-third. That's a very big number. With, uh, crap. That's a very big number with twenty-three zeros at the end. Much too big a number to comprehend. That's, <laughs> that's all I got. It's a good song. I, I can thank my high school teacher for that. Yeah. Um, a couple interesting things about Avogadro's number. So Avogadro's number is um the number of atoms in a mole. In what a the, mole. Yeah. What a hell is a mole? <laughs> um, a mole. Is, thing I can't uh, get off my was, back. was introduced by a chemist by the name of Oswald, um, and he kind of he he said that it existed as like a amount of things in a gram, but he didn't mm-hmm. really. It took him a couple of years to actually understand what he was saying, um, <laughs> and he made it clear uh, that the it is based on a molecular weight of a substance. Okay. Um, so it's the number of molecules in a particular weight of a substance. Okay. Um, so based on what the what the atom is, it'll be a different number of particles right um but the funny thing about avogadro uh avogadro's number is actually it wasn't discovered by avogadro at all oh uh yeah Cheetah. he was actually Cheetah. i know he was um he was a lawyer who became interested in physics uh and he was a lawyer he, that became... yeah and he do you, do you know that what year he was in originally? uh 1820 1820 okay. yeah and uh and he did come up with something scientific uh his uh his famous hypothesis is that equal volumes of different gases at the same temperature and pressure contain the same number of particles. It's like, okay, that's that's cool, I guess. Get back to the courtroom. I know. <laughs> You're just like, really? Um, but the first pe- person to estimate it was uh, Joseph Loschmidt, an yeah. Austrian high school teacher who later became a professor at the University of Vienna. And basically what he did is uh, he measured the number of particles in one milliliter of gas in standard conditions okay one milliliter of gas okay and you know if you can understand density um you can go from milliliters to grams and you can count the number of particles in a gram approximately and uh and now the number of 6.02 times 10 to the 23 uh is just specifically how many 
atoms are there in one gram of a particular isotope of carbon? Huh. Um, so they kind of fancy for chemists. Yeah, well, they they need to come up with some standard. It's, it's um, good for chemistry. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, yeah. Uh, but that was one of the numbers that I'm just when we were thinking about the show. I was like, where the hell does that come from? Um, You're trying to represent your people, aren't you? I got to represent a little bit. Yeah, uh, I don't get to represent often enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, and that's Avogadro's number, uh, which was you know, is interesting and and one of these numbers that that is super useful but you're just like where did you come from yeah yeah um kind of like the speed of light the speed of light the speed of light is very 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 cool um in the sense that it, it's a, there's a constant yeah it, it um it has a very defined speed and the way we found it begins this way uh galileo Remember our old friend Galileo? Galileo, Galileo. He he, um, he had a bad idea. <laughs> As <laughs> no, no, all no. good science starts. No, no, no. He had a great idea, but he just didn't really understand how fast the light was, and so it didn't pan out. So what he did was really simple. He and a friend of his uh, went up to two adjacent mountains, okay? And I believe the mountains were roughly like four kilometers apart. So they're adjacent, but, you know, still far apart. And he had uh, he had a light. There was like a candle, or probably a little brighter than that, since it's four kilometers away. Mm-hmm. And um, at the top of these mountains, they would flash the light. And when Galileo would flash his light, he would try and count how fast his friend would flash his light back. So you know, uh, I'm kind of giving you a signal, and the second you see my signal, you respond. And so what he very quickly noticed was that the second he did his. Uh, his his colleague essentially flashes light almost immediately. So he kind of realized, well, crap, this isn't working out very well. <laughs> um, but what that, uh, that's, I mean, it, it wasn't a completely successful, but it wasn't unsuccessful. It kind of gave him some, it gave him an idea that the speed of light is actually really quick. Uh, but it also actually told him that the speed of light was much, much faster than the speed of sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the speed of sound is roughly 300 meters a second. Yeah. Uh, and when you think about that, 300 meters a second it really isn't that fast. I mean, okay, yes, it's fast. Yeah, okay, it's Mach 1 or that's what it is. Um, but I'm sure you've probably seen this. I've seen this. Uh, it's happened to me before where I was out my window and I was seeing construction. And uh, there's that, that huge, it bashes columns into the floor. Um, and it's just this huge weight that kind of goes boom, boom. Um, and it was roughly about, I don't know, I'd say about uh, two, 200 meters away. And what I really quickly realized was that, you know, when you, you see the thump and it's like, where's the sound? And then, oh, there it is. And it took roughly, you know, three quarters of a second to, to, to happen. And, and the same thing can be said about thunder and lightning, right? Ah, so you, oh, perfect. It's, it's even better. Another, another example, That's right? So you see the light yeah. and then you're like, okay, okay. Okay, and then all of a sudden you hear it. Yeah. Um, and you think about it like light and and sound, they have to travel the same distance basically. Right. right. Um, but because one. Have you ever played the game where you're trying to guess how far it was? I do that. I, maybe that's just me. Actually, we we <laughs> do it. A loser. Uh, we do it on the soccer field. Um, because okay. if the lightning is too close, okay, uh, we won't continue to play. Okay, cool. Um, because it's dangerous. So do you wait for the thunder or do you wait for the lightning? Well, the lightning you, strike you can't tell, right? But the thunder or the 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 the, 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 the yeah the thunder you. If you see it and then you wait and you see you we, how long it takes for you to hear it, 
Well, you multiply that number of seconds by 300 meters. Exactly. Right. And, and it's kind of a, a rough estimation. It's rough, but it, right. But it's okay. the idea is like, okay, so you see it. You count how many time, like how much time has passed until you hear it. Yeah. And that'll tell you how far away it is. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so, so that's yeah. light and sound. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so that kind of just gave them an idea. Okay, this is how, this is how much faster it must be. And so the real, the the real breakthrough came in um, uh, in the 17th century with his name is a Danish astronomer called Ole Romer. Okay, I'm probably butchering that name. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, probably. You know, my Danish is a little rough. Um, <laughs> and he was a um, he was a royal uh, he was an observat uh, uh, I say an astronomer at the Royal Observatory in Paris. And he was actually kind of just double checking one day on a lot of the numbers uh, that Galileo was was putting forth. Mm. And what he realized, so this, so he, he was he was looking at the moon of Jupiter, and so the moon of Jupiter is obviously going around Jupiter, and it's called Lu L U. Mm-hmm. And um, what he was noticing was they were measuring the eclipses of um, of Lu um, from Earth. So every time, sorry, you know, you're on the, the Earth is going around the sun, okay, and uh, as the Earth is going around the sun, well, the Jupiter in itself as well is 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 going around, uh, but again, the the moon of Jupiter is going around Jupiter. Yeah. So every time it goes behind Jupiter, well, there's a there's a lunar eclipse for that moon. And what he noticed, he was taking all these measurements, and was he what he noticed is that throughout the year. Uh, when the Earth was closer to Jupiter, that the intervals between those um, those lunar eclipses was roughly about 22 minutes shorter. Weird. Than than the when the Earth was further away from it, right? Because it's an it's an eclipse. Let's remember. So it's closer. It's further. It's closer. It's an further. ellipse. Sorry, an ellipse. Sorry. Um, and uh, and then he noticed that when it was further away, it was roughly about 20 minutes longer. So he's like, well, why the hell would the interval be longer? Uh, and it came to him that it's the distance that the light has to travel in the Earth's ellipse around the sun. Weird. Right? So so the distance, uh, so the diameter of that ellipse is the extra time that light has to travel. Uh, and that's the time that he was waiting around saying, hey, this interval is wrong. And that... In actual sense, and in, in, uh, to be more specific, is actually sixteen and a half minutes. Uh, he counted twenty-two. He was a little off, but obviously there's a lot of like ambiguity. Well, not only that, like the the rudimentary aspect of all of the equipment that he's probably using. Yeah, six minutes. Six minutes is a lot, but it's, yeah. So based on his calculations, he came up with two hundred and twenty thousand kilometers a second. Good start. And the actual value is 299,000. Okay, so he's only roughly about 26% off. That's that's impressive uh, because, you know, you're trying to calculate something that's so fast, such a large number, and you're only 26% off based on the lunar eclipses of, of Jupiter. Let's get real, people. Well, the, even just the, the conceptually to go like, mm, you know what, this would be a great way to calculate... The so, speed of light. Well, so that's like, the thing. So he never actually intended to do that. It just so happened that he had the information, and he's like, "Wait a minute." So yeah, but you're right. Even to come up with that, 
to say, oh, wait, the extra time it takes for this interval must be due to the distance or the, the diameter of the the ellipse of the sun orbiting the or the earth orbiting the sun oh my god okay so really <laughs> really 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 impressive um so he was a little off but that um that allowed uh the next scientist monsieur armand fizeau Ooh. uh yeah 1849 and so he devised uh, an experiment that is really ingenious what he did was he got on top of a mountain much like galileo did and he had a light source um, and he had a spinning toothed wheel. So what does that look like? It kind of looks like, um, you know, you ever been on the you know, Pirates of the Caribbean type thing? Yeah. And um, the, the, the captain the, is, yeah. is, is driving the ship with that, that wheel. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a circle, but it has these kind of, you know, every, every, these teeth. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So that's exactly essentially what he had. And so he had a light source facing towards, uh, you know, for instance, the other side of the mountain. And then he had this, this, this tooth wheel right in front of the light source. And then he had a mirror on the other side of the mountain. Hmm. So essentially what he was doing was that he was shining the light all the way to the other side of the mountain, and the mirror was reflecting it right back to him. Okay, and that's all he did. And then he would spin the wheel. So what happens is that if you're in between the teeth, the light shoots through the teeth, hits the mirror, comes back, and you don't see any kind of... Um, and you kind of blocking. The tooth doesn't block because the light went so fast and yeah. back that there's no, no obstruction. Yeah. But if you spin that wheel fast enough, what happens is as the light shoots through the wheel, okay, it gets through and it hits the mirror, the wheel turns and that tooth starts to interfere with the light coming back. Okay. And all of a sudden you see the outline of the tooth in the reflection. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Now the speed of the wheel is fast enough to block or is faster than the speed of the light going there and back. Weird. And so because he knew how fast the rotations was going and he knew the distance of how fast or how far the light was going back, he was able to calculate the speed of light. And he calculated at uh, 310 thousand kilometers getting closer he was uh, he was fin- uh, i think it was 3010 or 301 I, I think i'm mistaken i think it's 301 uh, so he was so infinitesimally close um to to the exact speed of light and he did it through a light a tooth wheel a, a mirror, mirror like and, nothing you know and a rotation yeah um it makes you think that like the science we're doing these days is like ah we're doing easy stuff because we got all the machines to we, do yeah all. we really did yeah so um and of course that that speed of light has given rise to equations like emc square yeah um it you know it allows us to um to calculate how fast the light from the sun is coming it, it just there's just so much uh, which is just really impressive. And I think that's that's kind of a good place to end the show because like all of these numbers um, have such a big effect on life. Yeah. And it's actually kind of funny to, to hear the stories of how they, they were discovered. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you know, gravitation was done by mistake. Right. Uh, the speed of light was... Yeah, uh, it was a result of him looking at a lunar eclipse from Jupiter. Yeah, and, and the ingenuity to think of like pi is like, you know, if you fit a polygon in there and then you kind of like estimate it, yeah, we'll figure out 3.14. That, that's, that, sure, yeah. it's a constant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think we'll just we'll end it there. I think it's perfect. So I want to give a big shout out to CHUO for uh, having you. us in here Thank and you, uh, letting uh, let us use their space. Yeah. Uh, and if you like us, 
rate us. Rate us five stars. Five stars on the iTunes. Yeah. Uh, we have no new reviews, sadly. Uh, but we want more because that way we can, you know, continue our review we'll review. We're going to give you a shout out. Review review. <laughs> uh, but you can find us. So if you're on iTunes, you can leave us a little review. On the Twitter. On the Twitter. You can find us at, at curiosity, curiosity underscore pod. And Gmail. Curiosity.pod at gmail.com. Perfect. And uh, and yeah, and that's us Until signing off.